So I've been seeing what you've been uh, writing on Twitter, and I thought, well, I got to get Aaron in here to talk about liberalism, libertarianism, liberty, and uh, and now I've got you here. So I'm excited about it. Sounds Hopefully, good. we'll get some questions um, from the audience today. And I just want to start out by asking you about a, a few definitions, because I think what happens a lot of times is people get confused by the definitions and that often makes it difficult for people to understand each other. So how would you describe the left? What does that mean to you when you hear the left? Sure. I mean, so part of the problem with definitions of, of broad political categories is even people within them will disagree. I mean, as you know, you get, you get like two libertarians in a room You'll have three different opinions of what libertarianism is. But I think the left is generally and historically has been a, <clears throat> a political project that aims at tearing down or flattening kind of traditional hierarchies of, of power. So it, it began as a reaction against the aristocracy and the monarchy – and those old caste sort of systems in Europe and sought to sought to flatten those. So bringing up the bottom, taking away these, these striations of status and so on. And that led it to driving abolitionist movements and women's rights movements and early movements for religious freedom and so on. But – it's not all – I mean that's a, that's a relatively rosy picture. Um, the, the unrosy version of it is that the left, as its mechanism for doing that, turned to centralized power in the state, to, to political action and political coercion. And so it said if these if, – if power is being concentrated among the few and we want to spread it out – more the way that we do that is to empower government and this thing we've called the state to to take action whether that is you know violent coercive action redistributive action interventionist action and so on and that that's been that's central to the left's political project there are some versions of the left like there are, there are anarchist leftists and so on but they're they're not they're I don't want to say they're insignificant, but they're relatively small players in this story. Um, but, but I think so. The left wants to achieve flattening of hierarchies and power and emancipation, but it does this via state action. This was Murray Rothbard's thing of socialism as this kind of confused middle of trying to achieve leftist ends with conservative means. Um, so that's that's how I tend to see the left, and then the spectrum within the left is basically how committed is this project, what the details are, and how much it wants the state to control in order to achieve these particular flattening of hierarchy and power structure ends. So this part of your description uh, where you discuss centralized power as being an aspect of the left is, I think, why a lot of people – tend to associate libertarianism as being uh, wholly adverse to the left, where mm -hmm. it is, it's, it's 
it stands against the left, and that's how you just define libertarianism uh, for many people. So you, through your writings and a lot of your work, have focused a lot on the dangers of the right. So how would you describe what the right is? Yeah. So I think first we need to disentangle a bit the what this means in an American sense, because the the right in Europe, I think, has been different from at least what parts of the right have been in America, that through kind of weird historical accidents, we ended up with a lot of people who I think are better described as liberals joining with the right. So classical liberals often think of themselves in part of this, like the Republican coalition and so on, even though I don't think they're meaningfully of the right. The right has been historically the the side for traditional hierarchies so it was it was in you know it was the the pro monarchy the pro aristocracy the pro class systems um it was generally the forces against abolition and women's liberation and so on um and so the right tends to be i think at its core it's a it's more of a reactionary movement that in you know there's if the left is pushing for social change, the right tends to push against social change and for the protection of traditional values and traditional ways. And I kind of put traditional in quotes, but of, of doing things. And so whether that's gender roles or the place of different groups in society or, you know, the defending the British class system or even in softer versions like a, you know, a GK Chesterton, like Chesterton's fence of don't go and overthrow traditions until you understand them because they have a purpose, you know, or a Burkean sense. But I think that's been the right has been that broadly speaking is kind of that reactionary side of things that says traditions have value and and how we define value can, you know, say a lot about whether the rights project is is good or not. But is pushing back against those forces of kind of social change that the left has has been trying to achieve. So is it your position that tradition is not really an element of libertarianism? It's it is not No, and there are certainly there are certainly traditions, especially like traditions of liberal institutions and those rules and systems that protect liberty and rights and create prosperity and so on that that a libertarian would defend i think my position is that there's always going to be a tension between liberty and tradition because a free like genuinely free people a, a society made up of free individuals is going to change like because people are going to some people are going to choose new and different ways to live they're going to experiment with different arrangements they're going to shift their values like society is not static if it's genuinely free and and so it's always liberty is always going to push against traditions and some traditions may be overthrown very quickly because people are just like if if not forced to comply with them they're like I don't want any part of that um but others may stick around longer for a variety of reasons some may be good some may be bad but if you are i guess a dyed in the wool traditionalist in a genuinely free society there's going to be a tension there because that society is going to kind of change out from under you yeah of course uh but there there are obviously 
reasons to uphold traditions as well. I mean, you mentioned some of these um, certain liberal institutions which develop over time. So what's your take on, for example, Hayek's view, which has a lot of tradition um, as a part of it? Uh, it, It's somewhat Burkean in many respects. And there's an emphasis on the importance of valuing uh, traditional institutions. I think I would say that the value of tradition in that respect is is more one of prudence that certain institutions, you know, in, in a Hayekian sense, like institutions evolve. They weren't, you know, necessarily centrally planned. If they have stuck around, and this is also Burke's argument, if they have stuck around, it's because the people were getting something out of them. And, and so if you, the risk is that we may not, we as say like radical social reformers might not see the kind of hidden value in these institutions. And so if we, I guess, move too fast and break things, we may end up breaking things that we shouldn't have. Not in the sense that like there was something inherently valuable about maintaining tradition, but that the traditions were basically a a way of getting society to stick to a set of principles or institutions that was working. And if we can come up with if we have something that's better, that's, you know, moving to that is is can be good, but just because we've imagined that this new thing will be better or we think we've understood that these traditional things are bad in the following ways doesn't mean we're necessarily right about that. And so I think it's more of a like counseling caution than it is saying there's something inherently valuable in, in tradition itself. I've recently seen some of your criticisms of the Supreme Court, and some of them has, have struck me as a little bit anti-institution. And so I'm I'm trying to um, get a better understanding of your perspective on this because uh, – and I don't know if it's just the anger of the moment, uh, which can be part of it. Obviously, we're mm-hmm. all humans and we write on social media and we're upset about certain things that a court does or the executive branch or the legislative branch. Um, but I've always had a concern – that if you wiped away these institutions that we have in the United States, our um, our three branches, our constitution, what you'd get in return it would not be better. It would be worse. So what is your perspective on that? Because I've seen some of your um, hostility toward the Supreme Court and toward other institutions and sometimes, you know, mocking the 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 individuals who are there for you know not necessarily being good lawyers or good whatever good obviously not good members of congress so um where where do you think that takes us if if we go down that road is that um are you suggesting that these institutions themselves should be rethought and um and maybe you start over with a new constitutional project or something totally different it's no, it's a good question. And I think there is. So on the one hand, you can, you know, in the moment you're mad about a particular Supreme Court decision or you're mad about a particular law that Congress has passed or you're, say, a little bit skeptical about who actually won that last presidential election. 
And so you say, okay, the, the solution is like right now we're going to tear this thing down, right? Like that's, that's kind of one extreme. Um, and I don't, I don't think that that's, you know, I was obviously very upset about what happened on January 6th. Um, even though, and I know there were, like I personally got pushed, like when I criticized what happened on the Hill that day, I personally got pushback from people who call themselves libertarians being like, I thought you were anti-government, you know, like why, why aren't you cheering? Yeah, these I, I know exactly are, what you mean. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and I think the answer to that is, is precisely what you just said is that, you know, this wasn't, you can be like a complete anarchist, right? But you can still think like what you guys are trying to tear this thing down and replace it with is not an improvement. You know, um, so just just the mere fact of tearing things down doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get something better. On the other hand, and this is what I I think I try to push back on a fair amount too, is I think there is a tendency to invest too much of a mystique in some of these institutions and in some of like the the nature of the office. Say that these are. There's, there can be wisdom and value embedded in them, but ultimately they are also are just people. They can make bad decisions. They can make wrong decisions. Um, they can act on impure motives or, or outright corruption. And if we have convinced ourselves that, you know, say the, the Supreme Court is this kind of deific oracle that is always, you know, it like that questions come in and we might not like the answer, but the, they come out and then we have to like fully respect them and so on that we can end up in a situation where like our commitment to institutions gets in the way of like a broader commitment to justice or a better society. And it can lead to passing up on potential opportunities to to change things so that so i guess the short version of the answer is most of the things that people might want to like tear these things down and replace them with probably aren't improvements but that doesn't mean that these institutions couldn't potentially be improved and it doesn't mean that like there aren't conceivable replacements that might work and we should be we shouldn't be so committed to the tradition of certain institutions that we say this is kind of not only is this the best we can get, but this is like the best in like a Panglossian absolute sense as well. Uh, yeah, I, and I get that. And I, I understand that a lot of your focus is on how can we persuade people to come to libertarianism, especially people who are not um, from the right, because your view has been that uh, libertarianism for too long has been associated with the right and – that there are reasons why we might be able to pull people from the left or reach out to other people. And in fact, there may be uh, people on the left who have very libertarian views that are not considered libertarian because they're not libertarian on certain issues. Um, do you ever worry, though, that when it comes to things like criticizing the Supreme Court and suggesting that um, you know, these are just a bunch of uh, this is like I'm paraphrasing, but buffoons or whatever who are, you know, they don't necessarily know that much about the law or they're not necessarily better than other lawyers that it feeds into 
the view of people who I think you are most concerned about, which is people who are illiberal on the right and the left, that it feeds into that view that, yeah, none of this is worthwhile. Uh, what do we need a Supreme Court for? What do we need any of this for? Um, the the end justifies the means. Uh, let's just get our monarch in there or whoever who will give us the thing we want, and that's the way it's going to work out. There will be some fight between all of us, and uh, the right will have its person it wants as monarch, and the left will have its person it wants as monarch, and, and we'll just duke it out. Do you ever worry about feeding into that kind of process? I... And I'm not trying to be like yeah. especially critical. I'm trying to no, like no, no. tease this out because it's something I wrestle with all the time, right? Mm-hmm. I, as a, a former member of Congress, I've been very critical of Congress as an institution. I've been very critical of uh, certain Supreme Court opinions. On the other hand, I am very concerned about giving the impression that tearing all these things down will give us some better outcome. And and so I've tended to focus on how people are not upholding the uh, spirit or principle of the institution rather than uh, trying to suggest that this institution is not very valuable. And I'm not saying that that's what you're doing, that you're suggesting it's not valuable, but um, I, I have had the sense from you that um, maybe you're willing to, you know, take a few nicks out of them right now you know just like <laughs> i i mean i am so i am a political radical um and, and probably <laughs> you know i mean my my political views are yes outside the norm in terms of their their level of radicalness but are are I, you are do you would you describe yourself as an anarchist i think i am <sighs> call it like anarchist sympathetic so I, I think that the the arguments about and I have made these arguments at length about the the legitimacy of of state power and political authority that anarchists make are persuasive um, that that ultimately political authority, the argument for why people who call themselves the state get to issue commands and then use violence to enforce them when the rest of us don't and if that's if they're legit like if it's legitimate for them to do so, I think the arguments for it being legitimate don't really hold up to scrutiny. But um, I think that when it comes to political anarchism, i.e. smash the state, I have enough hang-ups, I suppose, like enough areas where I'm like – that might be more just in one sense, but the results might not – might be bad enough that we're you know, like we're willing to live with the smaller injustice of the state potentially – um, where I haven't like so I want to be convinced of the political anarchism, but I haven't been yet. And so I don't yet I don't call myself a, a political anarchist in that sense. But to the the point about the institutions, I think one of the things that's interesting to bring up Congress is we tend to we being like the American political community, I think does tend to think about the Supreme Court differently than we do the other two branches of government. That we you know, most people are very down on Congress and have all sorts of problems and have have no problem with like the notion that, you know, members of Congress, present company excluded, are not, you know, these like kind of elevated philosopher kings. Um and, yeah, they're, and definitely, they're definitely not. You're yeah. <laughs> you're absolutely right uh, about that. 
Uh, and we tend to think that way about the presidency, too. Like the presidency has become a lot less of a well-regarded institution. Yeah. Um, and but the Supreme but the courts are kind of outside of that to some extent. And we still tend to think of the courts as there's like something fundamentally different about them in this regard. And that is something that I am, I guess, at least skeptical of that the courts are kind of less politically motivated as as individuals on them, um, that they're less bound up in these kinds of fights, that they are, you know, that they are like closer to philosopher kings than the rest of us. Um, and so that's not the same thing as saying we should therefore turn, tear down the institutions in the same way that being like really critical of Congress is not the same thing as saying we should tear down Congress. So you, I'm kind of just trying you, to treat the courts more like we treat the other branches. Do you worry, though, that if we start to treat uh, individual justices in a very partisan manner or what's viewed as a partisan manner, like the the left criticizing the uh, so-called conservative justices and the right criticizing the so-called uh, progressive justices or however you might want to describe them, that what ends up happening is it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. In other words, we uh, make the institution so partisan that the, justice, the justices themselves start to feel it in a sense, and they start to say, well, nobody trusts me anyways, so I might as well be whatever i might as well be the partisan for the right because that's what people believe anyways whereas when it has more of a mystique maybe some of them think there's some greater thing than just the party politics i'm here as a justice for all people and which is part of the reason we have them separate from the political process as it is where you have lifetime appointments um they're they're not elected it's separate from the political process in that sense or the direct political process yeah, I think that's it's it's actually an interesting point because this is one area where I do think that the political criticisms of the justices are largely off base. That there is this tendency for a lot of Americans, particularly on the left right now, because the conservatives have got this majority in the court, but you see it from the the right as well that that these these justices are kind of just partisan hacks, right? That they're just they're just deciding they're Basically, at like post hoc coming up with justifications for pure partisan positions, and I don't think that that's true. I think that a lot of a lot of people don't understand like theories of constitutional interpretation and the way that justices approach making or judges approach making these kinds of decisions, and so they can still be. Like we can still disagree. We can still say like that, you know, the conservatives made the following decision on this issue and they were wrong in their legal reasoning, right? We can we can say that, or that they the the liberal justices made these and they were wrong in their legal reasoning, and that's a perfectly reasonable you know position to take. But I think that they're they're not typically wrong because they were partisan hacks. They're wrong because they had a particular judicial philosophy that they applied in a way, and there was either an error in the judicial philosophy or there was an error in the application. Um, and but that a lot of it gets read as partisanness is is really just they have a philosophy, and this is why you always get the like the the left will be like, and it's weird. All the liberals said this, and Gorsuch joined them surprisingly. And it's like, no, if you understood like Gorsuch's legal philosophy, this is where he inevitably would have ended up, right? Um, so it's not it's it's not a, it's 
it's what we would have assumed would be the case instead of being a surprise, but it only looks like a surprise if you have this purely partisan lens. Yeah, and we often run into that um, when we think about justices or potential justices, because this comes up all the time with the Merrick Garland versus um, you know Neil Gorsuch comparison. Mm-hmm. People always bring that up, and I think it's likely that in most respects, Neil Gorsuch is um, more liberal in some sort of traditional sense than, say, a Merrick Garland, who is more of a um, conservative, actually, in many respects, in their yeah, judicial in their much judicial more philosophy. Deferential, much more yeah. deferential to executive power than Garland or than um, Gorsuch is. Yeah, I mean, I don't think the left's kind of pining for Merrick Garland is somewhat. Well, I, I always found that <laughs> I always found that strange. The the love for uh, Merrick Garland. Um, yeah. Let's take a let's take a caller here. Um, sure. We'll take Thomas. Thomas, you're you're on. Oh, hello, hello, hello. Can you hear me? Hey, Thomas. Yes. Oh, yes. Thank God. <laughs> okay. Um. So I'm I'm calling in today. Um. This is the first time. I've ever done this, so I feel a bit nervous. <laughs> so it's okay. I'm, it's a first for everyone. If yes, if I'm rambling or uh, you feel I'm just droning on, feel free to interrupt me uh, at any time. <clears throat> so the reason I'm calling is because uh, I feel that um, there is a certain perspective uh, that's been lost that used to be advocated by uh, by libertarians or the predecessors to libertarians. They used to be very mainstream. And uh, I want to focus right now on sort of the fact that liberalism and the free market tradition was born in revolution, which I think um, you would agree with when it comes to the French Revolution. That is, uh, you know, scholars like Helena Rosenblatt, for example, have talked about this, uh, the fact that liberalism was really born in the French Revolution against, in a revolt against monarchy, aristocracy, and... territorial and and privilege, private or exclusive rights, right? They weren't just, you know, advocates of the status quo. They weren't just people who just endorsed any form of um, ownership. They were very much reformers. And when it comes to this, um, you know, for example, you know, Joseph Sies, I think I'm pronouncing that correctly, he wrote a very famous pamphlet called What is the Third Estate, which where he talks about the privileges of the nobility, of, you know, feudalism. And, you know, so this is this is very much a mainstream thing. And I think, like, the problem is um, the most consistent application of that philosophy has been lost. Um, now, again, I want to sort of focus here on Thomas Paine, uh, you know, the most, I would call him the most consistently libertarian, the most consistent um, advocate of freedom among the American founding fathers and someone who, um, you know, became a French revolutionary who went over there and, again, went against uh, monarchy, aristocracy, and so on. Um, am I still, can you still hear me? Is, is this yes, good? Yes, you're still there. Okay, yep. good, good, good. Um, yes, I'm, I'm still there. So um, what I would say is Thomas Paine, he, uh, he was what some would call a geoist or a, a Georgist, um, although he existed before uh, Henry George, the person whom that 
Trump is named after. Um, you know, if you read uh, his pamphlet, Agrarian Justice, it's just this beautiful, um, it's this beautiful argument that poverty is not natural. Inequality is not natural. We, why does, why do, why does this social problem exist? It's not because of, you know, free trade or whatever. In fact, he was a free trader. He was an advocate of freedom. The reason poverty exists is that the equal rights of people to the earth um, have been denied. Uh, so, you know, again, like Thomas Paine, I've heard people call him a communist, a socialist. When I bring this up, he wasn't. He was just a consistent advocate of freedom. And I believe that this tradition, this geoist or Georgist tradition is highly relevant today. And I understand that this may seem, you know, kind of ridiculous or, or weird, you know, a, a philosophy that focuses on, um, you know, I mean, his pamphlet was called agrarian justice. Isn't like land just irrelevant nowadays? And I would say, you know, I understand that perspective, but I would say, you know, if you look at the evidence, if you look at the data, and we would be, you know, people in this sort of Georgia's tradition, like myself, would be happy to, you know, engage on this subject. Um, it is, in fact, very relevant today. Um, land is very important. Territorial privilege is very, very important. And um, so, <clears throat> uh, so you, basically, sorry. Yeah, do you have a question f uh, for us, Thomas? Oh, a, a question? Yeah. Um, I guess if, if you want a question, um, you know, what, what is your, uh, do you, do you think that Georgism is worth engaging with? Do you think it's something that, um, or, or land value tax or whatever is worth engaging with and, and something, uh, you know, as, as modern libertarians, as people who are trying to get away from the fusionist mistakes of the past? Thanks, Thomas. I'll let Aaron take that one. So I have been, pretty skeptical of Georgism, um, partly for the reasons I think that Thomas alluded to of that I think land ownership probably plays less of a role in a a modern technological society than than we would like, and that giving people access to land wouldn't necessarily lessen the kind of inequality that we say see in in a modern information age economy, and that also the a lot of the wealth that people have is not directly derived from land um but generally i'm also kind of in opposition to the notion of of large and new taxes as as a way to to flatten inequalities um especially because i think a lot of the a lot of the inequalities that we see in the market to the extent that you know that inequality matters um are often more the result of of state thumbs on the scale than then they are kind of existing distributions of land or resources, um, disparities in power often too. This is my my friends on the uh, anarchist libertarian left talk about, you know, the, the power that bosses have is often a result of kind of the way that, that states aggregate power in, in organizations and so on. And so I think I find a lot of those more fruitful ways to, to address some of these concerns than something like a land value tax. But at the same time, I, I will admit like Georgism is not something that I have, I have studied deeply. All right, let's go to, let's go to Zach. We'll make him our next caller.
Zach, are you there? Hello, can you guys hear me? Hello? Yeah. Hey, Zach. Uh, thank you guys for for the discussion. I, I, I enjoyed uh, both of you guys' perspectives, um, and I love the work that both of you guys do. Um, Thanks. So thank that you. being said, um, I, do, I do have a question. Um, I'm sure both of you guys know like about this group, but there is a... Uh, a paleo libertarian, um, I would I would even say like fascist fascist adjacent group called the uh, Mises Caucus. Then they like openly embrace hopping ideas and goals. And um, there's a libertarian convention here in about a week and a half, and they are expected to like take control over the National Libertarian Party. Um, so, what do you guys think um, the solution to this problem is? Do you think it's a problem? Um, is the LP dead? Um, and if so, where should classical liberals, um, radical liberals, and um, libertarians, both left and right, go if the LP gets overrun by like fascist types? Thanks. Well, I guess I'll start with that one. First, I think that it is a mistake to look at everyone within any caucus and to say things like they're all fascists. Um, I've spent time at Libertarian Party conventions over the past year. And from my experience, there are many people within various caucuses, including the Mises Caucus, who are interested in liberty, who are new to the movement and want to learn more. And a lot of times the reason people join a caucus within a party uh, particularly a small party like the Libertarian Party, is because they see that the caucus is actually doing something and they want to be involved in doing something. Now, a lot of people within the party may not agree with all of the um, goals of people at the top of the Mises Caucus. But I think it's a mistake to describe the peop- all the people within a caucus or the majority of the people within a caucus as fascist. I think if you want to... Um, specifically point out various individuals who are involved in fascism or some kind of authoritarianism or whatever it might be, I think um, I, I would say be my guest, go for it. But I think it's a mistake to classify everyone that way. My view on the Libertarian Party as a general matter is that people who view themselves as libertarian should be part of the Libertarian Party um, provided they are not doing anything actively to, to harm uh, the overall party and the overall movement. When I look at the political landscape, I see um, conservatives, I see progressives, and I see libertarians, broadly speaking. These are obviously generalizations because there are people who are sort of between those groups and there are people who might describe themselves in very different ways from any of those groups. But if the Libertarian Party wants to be a competitive party, it is basically competing against the Democratic Party and it's competing against the Republican Party. That's, that's the way I look at it. So you have three parties. One's going to be a conservative party. One's going to be a progressive party. And one is going to be a Libertarian Party. And um, I view the Libertarian Party as a liberal party. That's what I think the party should be. It should be a liberal party, broadly speaking. And people who are more closely aligned with liberalism in that sense. And for those who are you know, new to this discussion, I'm, I'm talking about what might typically be described as classical liberalism. Um, but I, I like to call it liberalism. 
those people who are closest to liberalism, I would like to see within the Libertarian Party. Now, there are some people who are going to be closer to liberalism than they are to, say, conservatism or progressivism, who are not exactly what you would view as being your ideal libertarian. But if the party is to be successful, it has to be big enough to encapsulate those people. When I was in the Republican Party, um, there was there there were members of the Republican Party who who varied from you know Lindsey Graham all the way over to Justin Amash at one point. I mean, we almost couldn't have more um, that's not in common. Yet we were in the same party, and in the Democratic Party, you have the same thing. You have some people who are what I would call pretty far right, and you have others who are quite left or socialist. And I think the Libertarian Party has to be um, a party that can accept people who are from this broader spectrum, or it's not going to be successful. This is a very different thing from libertarian activism. If if you or you know Zach or if Aaron or if I want to go out and be um, activists for libertarianism. I think that we should be activists for the type of libertarianism we believe in, even if it's a little bit more exclusive. In other words, it says, I don't think you quite fit into my worldview of what libertarianism is. But when you're running a political party, you're just organizing something to win elections. And there's no way around the fact that in any organization that's big enough to win elections, you're going to have some people you really don't like and other people you do like and agree with. And I don't think there's any way that that's not a problem that can be solved. That's not like a that's not a fixable thing, because if you're going to limit parties to only people that you find uh, particularly appealing, um, I mean, I I probably couldn't be in a party that's more than you know gets more than one percent of the vote or two percent of the vote ever, um, because I find a lot of people who are involved in politics not particularly appealing. But I have to make alliances with people who are closer to my views than they are to other people, and that's that's how the political process works. And um, I'll let Aaron answer. You know, he doesn't have to go on as long as I did, and I know he has different views about maybe democracy and the political process than than I do. But um, go ahead, Aaron. You you can take it. Yeah. So I don't. I mean, obviously, I'm like you, Justin. I have not. I don't participate much in electoral politics. Yeah, I've, I've read. I, I, I don't. I don't pr- approach things from that direction, and I do think that there is a. Or at least I have a real concern about the the direction the LP seems to be heading and the the kinds of views that are expressed more often within it than maybe they used to be um, as as a branding thing because we you know we have this term libertarianism and the LP is the most recognized brand within that, you know, to the point that when I ran libertarianism.org at the Cato Institute, we were just constantly, constantly saying, like, we're not affiliated with the LP. We have nothing to do with the LP. Libertarianism doesn't mean the Libertarian Party. Like it's, um, but that's the brand. And, and so for a lot of people who are exploring, especially younger people who are exploring their political identities, as many of us do when we're teenagers and, you know, young adults in our 20s or whatever, we're formulating those political identities and especially in online spaces where a lot of the people I think you're describing are incredibly vocal, have large followings and so on, um, that if 
if you're coming into this and you're saying, well, what is this libertarianism thing? And I think that we libertarianism as like a political theory is ought to be very appealing to a lot of people. Um, and part of my project is trying to figure out the ways that I think it can be made appealing to people that it hasn't nece- that we haven't necessarily put as much energy into talking to. Uh, if if they their first impression of the LP is something that looks closer to the, like this libertarian alt right pipeline and so on, or I just saw that Freedom Fest, the big libertarian thing, is featuring Nick Fuentes, who is like an outright Nazi um, and Holocaust denier, white nationalist, and so on, and they're they're displaying a movie about him and they're having him speak and so on. Like if that's the brand, then outside of the electoral politics side of things, people are going to look at this and they're saying, well, I don't want, I don't want to be part of something that has these people that has Nick Fuentes as part of it, which I think is a perfectly reasonable position for people to take. Right. And, and so that we don't, we can't even get to kind of the electoral side of things that I think Justin is describing because the brand becomes toxic. And so that's been, that's been my, more of my concern. And I think the solution there is to be a little bit more selective in who the LP platforms in what the voices that are out there are, and to try to get more diversity into the broader libertarian movement, which means reaching out to people who we haven't necessarily put as much energy into in the past so that there is a more kind of diverse base for it. Yeah. And I've been quite critical of individual Libertarian Party organizations, particularly state affiliates, that have done things that I think damage the brand, that give people a bad impression about the Libertarian Party, um, that maybe give the impression that it is a right-wing party or that it is supportive of Donald Trump or that it is supportive of um, a whole bunch of ideas that people generally find despicable. So I've been very critical of that, but I think we shouldn't mistake that for the party as a whole. Because when I um, attend libertarian conventions, I see people who are by and large not those types of libertarians. Now, I think what happens, as with any organization of of this size, uh, you're going to always have some actors who are doing things that are harmful – and they get outsized attention. If one state affiliate does something that is is harmful to the reputation of the Libertarian Party, that, of course, gets um, dramatized in many ways. It makes it onto the news at times. Uh, and as a result, all Libertarians get painted with that brush. I think that is a, a reasonable concern that Aaron has, and I'm, I'm sure Zach has as well. But I would caution against thinking that that is representative of the of the party broadly or representative of the movement broadly. And it's our job as libertarians who care about liberalism to present an alternative message while always keeping in mind that any organization – and this again goes back to my concern because I know it's, it's not as much a thing Aaron is – um, concerned about due to my interest in electoral politics. But any organization that's going to be big enough to win elections is going to be big enough to have some people you really find despicable within the organization. That's, that's just the fact because um, 
you're talking about getting tens of millions of people together to win elections. You're going to have some people who you do not find um, tasteful at all. You're going to have you're going to have people who are committing crimes. You're going to have people who say horrible things. That's just going to happen in any movement that large. Um, so there's no way to have any organization that is going to be, uh, you know, completely filtered of all that stuff. But that doesn't mean that we don't all go out there and try to give the right impression. And, and I, I do believe strongly in that. Uh, and it's been part of my focus is to give people an alternative perspective of what libertarianism is. And that's why I've appreciated what Aaron is doing because he's also giving that perspective. And I also appreciate people who come from different perspectives within libertarianism who want to spread their ideas. I think, you know, we have to go out there and make those competing messages and, um, and present libertarianism uh, for what it truly is. While of course, staying true to what we believe it is. We can't, um, you know, we can't we can't present it as something we're not just because you know we want to uh, gain access and popularity. So let's um, let's go to Patrick. Patrick. Hey, Congressman, can you hear me? Yeah, how are you doing? I'm good. Hey, it's Pat Eddington, formerly of Representative Rush Holtoff. Thanks for having my friend Aaron on. Um, I, can, can I go back to the Supreme Court discussion for just a moment? Sure. Um, I, I think, you know, one thing that's really important to remember is that, you know, who is actually selected and, and what their background is, you know, from a partisan standpoint I think really is in, incredibly critical. And I, I just want to give one quick example, uh, historical example that I think will hopefully resonate with you. You know, when Robert Jackson was FDR's attorney general, um, he had a, a very important decision to make. And that was in May of 1940 when FDR sent him a confidential memo directing him to engage in warrantless wiretapping in national security cases. And he went ahead and did it, even though the Communications Act of 1934 was explicit <laughs> that wiretapping was off, off the table for the time being. And, and Jackson, of course, was subsequently elevated to the Supreme Court. And, and I think I have, you know, just really fundamental grave concerns about anybody who's been involved, you know, in, in partisan politics, you know, to that degree, somebody who's been a, a, really prominent figure in an administration or, you know, even a sub cabinet level person, you know, who really has a track record. And I'm not saying this to take shots at Democrats or Republicans. I think it's a big problem on both sides, but I, I do think that the failure essentially of successive senates to properly and genuinely even handily evaluate, um, folks who are up for those lifetime appointments you mentioned, I think that's, I think that's a real problem. And I would just, you know, kind of, if you haven't had a chance uh, to kind of just shift gears slightly here, but still on the federal judiciary, if you've not had a chance to take a look at the work that my colleagues on Cato's criminal justice team have done looking at the composition of federal judges in terms of who was a former government advocate on the one hand versus somebody like KBJ, uh, who was actually a public defender 
kind of lived in the real world. I'd strongly encourage you and anybody listening to this podcast uh, to take a look at that study because former government advocates outnumber folks like KBJ anywhere from 10 to 1 to 12 to 1 on the federal bench. And I think that that helps to explain, at least in, in my view, why we have such radical and completely unconstitutional deference uh, to executive branch officials, especially in the national security context. Thanks. Yeah, I'm I'm totally with you. Um, and I was very happy to see uh, Ketanji Brown Jackson nominated because I thought this is an opportunity to get someone who will present some of this libertarianism from the left. At least there's the possibility <laughs> of that. Um, someone who's served as a public defender, and there may be lots of areas where I where I disagree with her ultimately, but I think that there's also that opportunity for her to team up with people like Gorsuch and Sotomayor and others to present this cross spectrum um, libertarianism that uh, defies typical expectations about the justices. So I was I was very happy about that. One of the things that I've I have been concerned about, and this is a little bit related to what you talked about, is the fact that there's no filibuster, um, there's no sixty vote majority or, or threshold required now for Supreme Court justices. There still is for everyday legislation, but there's not for Supreme Court justices, and to me that's completely backward. A Supreme Court justice who you're going to put on the court for a lifetime appointment is precisely the type of situation where you'd want to have a higher threshold to um, to satisfy the uh, confirmation process. Whereas legislation can be changed instantly. You can just change it. You can pass something this week. You can undo it next week. And every two years, there's an election of uh, most of the members of Congress and you can replace the old Congress with a new Congress and you can change the legislation. But once you put a Supreme Court justice on there, that person's on there for life uh, unless the person is impeached and removed. So um, I think it was a mistake to remove that 60 vote threshold for Supreme Court justices, especially given the importance of that role and uh, and given the, the, the place they sit within our constitutional system. Yeah, I don't have, I don't have a ton to add to what Justin said. I, I agree with what he said, and I agree with the concerns that Pat raised. Um, I would say it's just, it's interesting how much when I have talked with people outside of Washington, DC to go home for holidays or whatever, and people gripe about like the bias in Washington or the bias in, in the mainstream media. Um, and, they they frame that in you know the it's biased in a leftward direction or some of them think it's biased in a rightward direction or you know that really the real bias in in this town is in the media and in the government and this is goes to Pat's point about the number of prosecutors versus public defenders and the judiciary is is a bias for state power and the exercise of state power is that everybody just wants to do that and they celebrate that. And it's when the first time a president blows something up is when he becomes presidential in the eyes of the media. Uh, like that, that bias is, I think the, the maybe the most damaging thing in 
in Washington is just this, like the state's this powerful thing and we should use it. Um, and it's the handful of people who say, no, maybe not because it's, you know, the exercise of power is always troubling, um, are, are in the decided minority and that that cuts right across partisan lines. Yeah. And that's a concern I certainly had as a member of Congress, people would say, uh, the media are biased to the left. And I would say, no, they're biased toward the status quo in many respects. They're biased toward the establishment. They're biased to those who have positions of power. Um, so they will favor generally what the leadership in Congress are supporting. If you see McConnell and Pelosi agree on something, you will rarely see the media say that that is a bad thing. It, it basically never happens. If you see McConnell and Pelosi agree on something, you almost never get a situation where the media are like, that's actually a bad thing. They assume, because of their biases, they assume that if these two parties are in agreement, at least the leaders in the two parties, that it must be a good thing. These, these two must have come to their senses and done something good for the American people when, in fact – in many cases, when they're agreeing, they're doing things that are harmful. They are um, supporting a war, supporting unconstitutional surveillance, supporting uh, violations of civil liberties. And um, and that is, that is, to me, the real bias that the media have. It's this bias toward the establishment, toward the status quo, toward those who are in, in positions of highest power. Let's go to Chris. Hey, Justin here, and can you hear me? Yeah, hey, Chris. How's it going? Um, I was wondering, I was going to ask you guys about the uh, proposal that Biden put out this morning regarding housing. Um, I think it's kind of interesting for those who don't know. It's the main part of it is that they're putting aside five billion dollars to give to jurisdictions that's reduced their zoning laws. I think this is kind of interesting because zoning is pretty clearly to me like one of the most like negative regulations in terms of like the economy and a lot of like our, you know, our social lives as well. Just um, it affects the way we build our cities, the way we live, um, makes it hard to build housing, et cetera. So I think reducing zoning restrictions is a pretty clear win, but it's just, I think it's kind of interesting that the federal government is giving money to jurisdictions in order to reduce it. I was kind of wondering what you guys thoughts are. Do you think this will end up working or it'll end up not working? Well, being uh, a former member of Congress, my my natural instincts are to hesitate to respond without actually knowing what the proposal says. Um, I I do have concerns about zoning generally. Um, that zoning is often used um, f- for the government to restrict the the free movement of people to uh, enforce certain types of segregation at times. There are lots of problems with zoning, um, but I'll, I'll see if Aaron has anything more to say on it. And, and Aaron, what do you think about zoning generally? Is, is zoning, are zoning laws ever okay, um, especially when you get down to, say, smaller levels of government where you know it's just a, a small community, they have their own zoning laws? Is that a problem? 
I think it can be. I mean, I think we can probably think of instances where we would say, yeah, like having, you know, we're, we don't want the factory put in the middle of the residential neighborhood or something like that. But by and large, um, I think I mean, Chris is right. Like this is liberalizing housing is is one of the easiest wins that could be had in not just in terms of the economy, but in terms of just people's quality of life and freedom and ability to realize the sorts of lives that they want to live. And I often think that zoning, you know, we, a lot of us recognize how much, so a lot of, a lot of pro immigration arguments. So when like my libertarian friends will make arguments in favor of radically liberalized immigration, they make the arguments from the, from an economic standpoint, right? Like they say they'll immigrants grow G would grow GDP by this much. They could create all these jobs, like the economic side of things, but that a lot of those arguments are not persuasive to people who are, who oppose immigration because their, their argument against immigration is more of a psychological one. Like I am comfortable around people who look like me. I like the, you know, we're, we're seeing this stuff about great replacement theory, Right now, like I, I don't want to see demographic change. I want the country to be a certain color. Like it's, it's a psychological thing. And a lot of the zoning arguments get made in terms of the economics too. Like it would make housing cheaper. It, you know, enable people to move around for jobs, which would both improve their own pocketbooks, but also, you know, supercharge the economy and so on. And all of those are true. But I think that there's particularly in the, like big cities because the big cities have like some of the worst zoning and anti-housing policies and they're often dominated by people on the left um that, that basically the anti-housing um nimbyism is kind of the left's version of xenophobia um and that there's that a lot of it is doesn't really have to do with the economics but it's about the psychological of i bought a house in this neighborhood and now i don't want the character of the neighborhood to change sounds a lot like i don't want the character of the nation to change and so I, I wonder how much, even if you can demonstrate the overwhelming economic benefits of, of liberalized housing, how much traction that will get for a lot of people who their real argument is is something more kind of call it cultural or class differences or other like, I just don't want these people living near me. Do you see that as, as a big problem still today in both parties? Because it seems to me that if you go back 30 or 40 years ago, um, some of the more nationalistic stuff was coming from the Democratic side. And today it's obviously coming from the right. But um, is it a problem in both parties still? Or um, or is it is it so much bigger a problem in the Republican Party that there's no comparison? Do you mean specifically in the immigration context? Yeah, immigration or nativism or yeah. even the idea of um, sort of just stay out of my neighborhood. I I mean I think it is I think it is a bigger problem on the right, and we t I mean we tend to see more anti-immigrant views on the right than we do on the left, uh, and and they often are expressed in much uglier terms, but but it certainly is present. I mean that was the it was a few years ago there was the interview with Bernie Sanders where he's like open borders is a Koch brothers plot to import cheap labor <laughs> and so on. Like there's there certainly is a a strong anti-immigrant, and this was a lot of a lot of labor unions had anti-immigrant politics. Um I think that it it shows up 
very much on the left, um, although it's typically framed more in terms of like workers and not wanting to depress wages and things as opposed to like these people are different from me. But but it certainly is there. And I don't think that we should you know, the left has not even when the left's been kind of in charge, they haven't they haven't radically liberalized immigration and all that. The complaints about like Biden has opened the borders are like I wish I really wish that the Democrats were as liberal and immigration as the Republicans accuse them of being. Um, but, but it is, I think it is the case that like the hard xenophobia seems to be much more concentrated among the kind of Trumpist right than it is among the, the left. Do you think that some of the nativism or nationalistic tendencies have become more prominent in the Republican Party in recent years because some of the labor vote has moved over to the Republican Party and maybe there is some natural tendency within the labor movement to say we don't want um, you know workers coming in taking our jobs and and those people have shifted to the right I think that might be some of it but I think the I suspect that the broader issue that's playing out is first that there's that the the hardcore of the American right and the the base has never been super pro immigration. They've but they have they they weren't in charge of the party until fairly recently, um, and so the base has kind of taken over. And so it's less you know there's always that question of like did Trump create his voters or did he find them? And I think he it's more likely that he found them, right? They were there and he gave them a voice and then gave them power over the party. But I also think that this is a natural consequence of just a world that's becoming more interconnected. Economically, like goods are flowing across borders, technology is flowing across borders, we're using apps from other countries, people are traveling and so on. But also in terms of... Uh, of communication that we are because we're all plugged in more we're aware of each other outside of our our geographic bubbles than we used to be and a a significant number of people is that big five personality traits and one of them is openness which is like how kind of enthused are you by novelty of experience and change and whatnot versus are you do you feel threatened or uncomfortable with it and a significant number of people score low on openness. So they feel threatened by change and dynamism and, and unfamiliarity. And as the world has become more interconnected and as we, you know, television is showing us what people in these other cities are up to and where, you know, it's culture seems moving faster and so on. I, I think that's triggering that, that lack of openness as just a psychological trait. And so that's rearing itself more because in the past, when we weren't as interconnected, you could live in your small town and all these people could be doing weird stuff in New York city, but you didn't know about it. Right. But now you you're hearing about it constantly. Yeah. Chris, anything to follow up? Uh, Not really. Thank you for answering that. All right. Thanks so much. All right, let's go to Brandon. Chris, you're still there? Yeah, it doesn't seem to be letting me know. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I For some reason, I can't get rid of Chris, and I can't bring on Brandon. Um, I'm going to try to remove Chris, and let's see what happens. I don't know if we're just having technical difficulties here. 
but I've, I've, Chris must stay with us apparently. <laughs> so I guess, Chris, I guess you're a permanent part of the, uh, the broadcast now. I'm here. I, I can't even, I don't think I can even mute you. Um, and so, <laughs> so welcome, Chris. Um, so Aaron, while I try to see if I can figure this out, can you tell us why you don't vote? Sure. At least, if, if that's still true, I'd read that you don't vote and, yes. and possibly that's changed, but presumably yes. it hasn't. Yes. So I don't vote. I haven't voted in. 25 years, I think, in any level of election. And I, so it starts with, I personally don't vote, but I don't tell other people that they shouldn't. I think it's something like, if you want to do it, do it. And if you don't want to do it, don't, um, which is still a controversial position because a lot of people think there's something wrong with not doing it. But my reasons, so my personal reasons for not doing it are first, that on an individual level, your vote doesn't matter. Like votes can matter in, in very large aggregates, but the, the uh, likelihood that your individual vote has ever changed any election, national or state or local or, you know, hyper local, um, is, is basically zero and will remain zero. So if like, if you had never voted, the world would look exactly the same as if you, when you participated in all of these. So there's no, there's no utility in an individual vote, which means that if you choose not to participate, there's no disutility. And that said, I tend to think of it as the same way as a vegetarian who chooses not to eat meat, like their individual abstaining from eating meat is not likely to save animals lives. But you but would agree that in the, in the aggregate. But in the aggregate, yes. And so, so if we were all vegetarian, it would save, you know, a lot of animals lives. If we all stopped voting, it would change the outcome. But, but we're not, that's not the, at an individual level, that's not the decision. I'm not deciding that all of you should stop voting. I'm just saying, what do I want to do? And because I have enough concerns about the justice of, of not just like what the government actually does, but kind of what it's empowered to do and what any person who is going to be put into office is going to do um, and have broad concerns about the overall justice of just the system. I choose in this instance, because I know that it's not going to make the system worse. If I personally abstain, um, I choose not to participate in this thing that I have strong misgivings about. Now, if if the math changed such that my vote had a meaningful chance or even a vanishingly small chance of actually having an impact, then that would change the calculus. And I would likely switch over to voting. But I, I tend to think of it more as I am choosing not to participate in a system that I have a lot of problems with. And I'm choosing not to kind of put my stamp of approval on actions that ultimately I don't want being done in my name. In terms of how others interpret it, though, you do recognize that basically nobody other than people who have read your articles knows why you're abstaining. So are you making a difference in that sense of uh, sort of protesting the system or or is it more of an internal thing? You just don't feel like you have like a you'd have a guilty conscience about like voting for something 
that then is harmful? It's it's much more the latter. So it's a it's a personal thing in the same way that lots of people have like like the vegetarianism as an example, or I'm you know I'm not going to swear, or um, I am a Buddhist, and one of the kind of guidelines is you know to not take substances that cause heedlessness, and so I don't. And it's not I don't go around. I'm not doing it because I'm trying to set an example for others. It's just I have kind of set a set of principles for myself, and I want to try to live by them. Um, and they may not be principles that are shared by others. And I'm not trying to like tell the others that they need to live by them, but it's just I've made the decision, and you know, and there are there are religious groups that don't participate in voting because they you know see they don't want to place government authority above God's authority or something like that. But it's it's just so it's that personal choice. But but again, I'm not I'm not actually telling other people not to vote. Do you object to democracy? No, I object. I mean, so I object to to rule in the sense of some people having the right to issue commands to others and back them with violence. I think there's something there's something morally suspect about that. Um, and and so an ideal world would be one without rulers, without people in those positions of power over others. But that might not be a workable world. And so. In that respect, democracy seems to be overwhelmingly the best way – like if we're going to have political power in the world, democracy is overwhelmingly the best way to to guide and exercise that political power. And it's the most just form that, that we have found of it, and the alternatives all seem really awful. Um, and And so that's why I think like – even even if ultimately the exercise of power, even in a democratic system, is unjust, we should we should absolutely be defending democratic institutions because there isn't we're not going to get rid of of the exercise of power. Um, instead, getting rid of the de- democratic institutions is just going to make the exercise of power far worse. Is it possible to have a, a an organization with no rulers except at a very small level? Is it possible at, at large levels of organization to have no ruler? Because whenever you are participating in any process, there's no way to get any large number of people to agree on all aspects of some decision. Mm-hmm. Um, so aren't aren't your your values always upset in some way, in one way or another at, at large, it, le- at large levels, obviously it's possible within a small group of say a family or something sure. for you, you all like the same thing and you made mm-hmm. a decision. You're all going to the movie today and, and you all want to see it. But once you get to large levels of decision-making, which are sometimes necessary in life, right there, I don't think you can imagine a situation where there wouldn't sometimes be decisions made at a larger level. Um, there might be defensive reasons, as an example. In fact, the United States itself is established as sort of a defensive and trade alliance. Yeah. Um, so, and w- regardless of whether someone agrees with the United States or not, the point is um, they 
it was put together for a purpose, and the purpose was some sort of defensive alliance. But isn't it just the case that in any large level of organization, people are going to disagree? There's no way to have 100% satisfaction. Oh, absolutely. And, and, and you're I, going to have – there will be some – someone will be ruling in a sense. Someone will be – someone will be doing the thing, whatever it is. Uh, well, so this it, is – I think it, we have ex- to determine uh, – you know, Executing the law or the decision or something in some way. So we – there is a difference between, um, say, leadership and rule. So if I am a member of an organization and – there is a there's someone who is nominally in charge of that organization or a committee that's in charge of that organization or whatever, and they make a decision uh, that I don't think is that's not rule that is that is leadership, and I can disagree with the decisions of leadership, and if I disagree enough i can I can leave the organization or in some way seek to change, you know, like I want to get on to the board or um, I should see if I can be the next president of it or whatever. But that's not, that's not quite the same thing as political rule, which is this, you know, not like Max Weber's it's government is possesses a monopoly on the legitimate use of force within a geographic area. Like it's that, it's that use of force. Um, And so within, you know, an organization, like your boss can't lock you up or beat you or steal your money if you're not doing what he says. And that's that I think is a fundamental difference. But it's absolutely the case that in in any large thing, you're never going to get perfect consensus. But I don't think we need perfect consensus. Like what we need is is enough coordination for people to be able to live their lives well. And we have we have mechanisms for a lot of that. I mean a, a market economy is often very large and doesn't have a ruler, but it has it has mechanisms in place allow people to coordinate their behavior in incredibly sophisticated ways that produce you know results that there are people who can in a market economy can feel like they got screwed over or come out on the bottom because their industry gets wiped out by you know creative destruction or whatever like those are genuine but but by and large it improves the lives of everyone who's within it, um, and especially over time, and that that's, that's done without a ruler. Um, but at the same time, like you mentioned defense, like this is, you'd ask me at the beginning if I was an anarchist, and I said kind of I'm, I am like incredibly sympathetic to the anarchist argument, but I have hangups, and like defense is, is one of those hangups. Um, but, but I think that we can at least say, like right now, there is far more rulership than there needs to be for society to work well. The government is doing far more coercive stuff. And so let's scale it back and scale it back. And then if we get to the point where the concerns that you just raised, Justin, come up, where we're like, well, now we don't know how to make these decisions anymore. Well, then that might be a point to kind of stop the scaling back. But we're, I think we both would agree we're nowhere near that point yet. Mm-hmm. Let's try to get Brandon on here again. Okay. See if it works. It doesn't look like it's going to work. So you talk a lot about your concerns of the right, and we've touched on this uh, quite a bit, but what do you think went wrong? Should there ever have been an alliance between conservatives and libertarians was it useful in any respects, or would you say it was useful in no respects? And um, 
what do we do going forward as as libertarians or uh, radical liberals or however someone might want to define themselves? So I think it's important to be clear about what we mean by an alliance because one way that libertarians could have operated, and, and many do, is to say we essentially view ourselves as issue advocates, and the issue we are advocating for is liberty. And we are going to say if we're working with lawmakers, where if we think that this lawmaker is someone who we can work with on a li in a liberty-enhancing way in, in this particular area, we'll work with them. And if this lawmaker over here is someone we can work with, we'll work with them and so on. And there are you know lots of advocacy organizations that operate in this way. Um, but that's not quite what what I object to. What I object to is the strategy that that began in the 60s and kind of came to you know its height in under Reagan in the 80s of so-called fusionism, which was the strategy that says libertarians should basically embed themselves within the conservative movement and the Republican Party and and basically consider themselves partisans in this regard, where they their allies are the Republicans against the Democrats. We're going to try to advance our liberty agenda within one party versus the other. And that strategy, I am skeptical that a lot of utility came out of it. Um, a lot of the, the big wins for liberty haven't been because of Republican lawmakers. They Some of them have come from lawmakers on the left or they've come from the courts and so on, but we're just changing culture. And and so I think that's that's ultimately what I object to is the notion that libertarians should start to view themselves as of the right, which is kind of historically weird because libertarianism began as a movement of the left. But think of ourselves as of the right and as part of the conservative movement, part of the Republican Party. And the damage there and the reason I push back hard on it is that I think it especially now as the you know, as the the mainstream American right has descended in these these pretty awful directions, and as the Republican Party has has turned in a particularly dark direction, um, it seems unlikely that there's much in the way of victories to be found there because Republicans, you know, have like in many cases even abandoning the economic liberty that once kind of tied libertarians and conservatives together. Like the populist right is not all that pro free markets and free trade and so on. Um, and it's cutting off because this Washington and, and American politics is so partisan. If you're seen as like being with one side, then the other side sees you as the enemies. And so it's cutting off, I think, opportunities to to develop not alliances, but individual relationships across across party lines. Um, and so what that's I guess what I would say is like if I were if I kind of redoing things, it would be to stick more to see libertarians treating themselves as as issue advocates for liberty, working with anyone in any way that they think can advance that and not saying we are of one side or the other. Doesn't it stem from our two party system though? And a lot of libertarians feeling like they had to pick one or the other. And this view over the past few decades, at least, that libertarians are more likely to be welcomed by the right. I, I have I have heard that argument, and I've certainly had people like, like toss that toss argument them. at me. Um, but I think that part of the reason that libertarians have felt more welcome 
among the right is because they decided to embed themselves within the right. And so it's like if you if you, a bunch of your friends go and crash a house party um, and then you show up at that party and you're like, oh, some of my friends are here. That's not because the other people who hosted the party were like sympathetic to your friends or wanted them there or invited them or wanted people like you. It's because like that's where your friends decided to go. Um, and I think there's something similar going on that had had there been if we if we rewound the tape and libertarians had fused with the Democrats, I think it's very likely that today we'd be saying, well, they're more welcoming over there because there was you know, five or six decades of trying to do, of trying to embed themselves within this movement. Um, so, but at the same time, yes, I think that, I mean, I think the partisanship is, is very powerful. The two party system is very powerful. Um, but there are examples of libertarians who work with people on the left and in the democratic party and, you know, on certain issues, criminal justice being a big one, drug reform and so on um, that that show that you can if you put the effort in you can do it um, and I just I'm just skeptical that the that we're getting enough out of having embedded ourselves in in the conservative movement in the right in the GOP as as a as libertarians to justify that that the that the partisan argument like carries enough weight as far as actually achieving libertarian ends. I'm optimistic that our queue is working again uh, because it looks like David is able to come back in. But first, I'm going to answer a question from Brandon who uh, messaged it. And uh, Brandon wants to know um, why I no longer subscribe to the view that uh, you should run as – a candidate in one of the major parties because when I first got into politics, I uh, obviously ran as a Republican. I won election as a Republican for many years, and now I am a Libertarian. Um, I was—I uh, want to say a Libertarian Party member, not just a Libertarian. I've always been philosophically Libertarian. Um, so for me, it was a matter of trying everything and finding that none of it worked. Uh, I won election multiple times, it's true, as a Republican. I never viewed winning elections as the um, test for whether I'm succeeding in my mission. My mission wasn't to win elections personally. Uh, I never got into politics so I could win elections and be a congressman. My goal was to uh, reinvigorate the system, uh, a liberal system that I believe in, and uh, and I tried to do that through the Republican Party because early on – and Aaron might think I was mistaken – but early on I thought that that was the place where I might find um, people who are sympathetic to um, the principles I believed in. And I will say that what helped me in believing that was that I came into politics at a time when President Obama had just been elected. And I think there was a moment there where a lot of the interests lined up between uh, people on the right who had a lot of different reasons for opposing President Obama. Some of them 
legitimate, some of them very distasteful in my opinion. And um, and I'll say that most of the people I interacted with during that time told me that the reason they were in it were for was for limited government and economic freedom and individual liberty. And I took them at their word. Um, and my interactions with them indicated to me that these people were true to their word, that that's what they believed. Over time, it became clear to me as a member of Congress that this was not true, that a lot of the people who told me they were for uh, essentially classical liberalism were not really for it. And it was something that I was worried about. I was worried that one day I would face that moment when the people who told me they were with me would reveal themselves to not be with me. And it happened to come about most acutely at the time that we switched from President Obama to President Trump. Because, of course, it's natural uh, for people who are um, partisan and have biases to say one thing under one president and then when their president gets into office suddenly they have a very different perspective and what i found was a lot of the same people and this includes a lot of politicians of course a lot of my colleagues in the house freedom caucus a lot of my colleagues generally they told me they believed in the things i believed in they told me they believed in limited government they told me they believed in economic freedom they told me they believed in individual liberty they told me they were against the wars but as soon as President Trump came into office, suddenly they had very different views. Suddenly, bombing people day in and day out was okay because at least we don't have any additional troops going in. It's okay if you just drop bombs on everyone. And even that wasn't true. We were adding troops in places overseas for many years. In fact, Donald Trump had more troops in places like Afghanistan until then, then Obama had left him in Afghanistan until the very end of the term of Donald Trump, when at the very end he decided I'd better pull out a little bit so that I can make it look like I was actually against these wars. So I believed a lot of people when they said they were against the use of emergency powers in um, in arbitrary fashion by presidents. Presidents just declaring an emergency and, and doing whatever they want. I believed them when they told me they didn't want that much spending, but then President Trump got in there and all of a sudden they were for spending through the roof. They didn't care about any spending. They didn't care about any deficits or debt. Um, they used to care about unconstitutional surveillance, but as soon as President Trump was in there, FISA was just fine as long as it wasn't being used against President Trump. If it was used against the rest of us, it was just fine. In fact, President Trump himself signed multiple spying uh, reauthorizations into law that violate the rights of the American people. So, you know, at some point you try all these things and then you say enough is enough. And I tried to influence the Republican establishment. That didn't work. I tried to influence my colleagues in the House Freedom Caucus. I was one of the founders of the House Freedom Caucus. That didn't work ultimately. I tried to make the House a more process-oriented place through the House Freedom Caucus where we would follow the rules of the House. That didn't work. I And we had limited victories along the way, of course. But 
overall, it did not work as a project. I tried to convince Republicans that what Donald Trump was doing was wrong. That didn't work. So at some point you say, it's time to try something different. I didn't go to Congress just to spin my wheels, get reelected. I could have said all the same thing. I could have said, hey, no, Donald Trump's not that big a deal. Don't worry about Donald Trump and kept my mouth shut and kept voting the same way I was voting. I could have had the same exact votes, just kept my mouth shut about everything and stayed in the Republican Party and kept getting elected. I didn't have any problem with um, popularity in, in my district. I was doing quite well. Um, so never had any issues there. Never had any close races. So I could have just stayed there and done that, but that's not who I am. Um, I think we need to do something different. That's why I joined the Libertarian Party. And now, you know, we've heard from Zach. We've heard from others. Aaron has his concerns. There are people who are concerned about the Libertarian Party, and I'm certainly concerned in many respects, but I want to give it a chance. Um, I know there's going to be growing pains, but I think we can make the Libertarian Party into a liberal party, a party for true liberalism. And I can hopefully bring people in who viewed themselves at one point as being from the right or from the left, and bring them all in to this party um, to battle against those who are pushing for illiberalism, which is where I see the Republican Party especially going, but also the Democratic Party. So uh, I, I guess that's a, a long answer for why I've why I tried what I tried and why I'm doing what I'm doing now. So let's see if David is able to join us on this call. Can you hear me? Yes. David. All right. It's working. All right. Well, thanks for having me on. Uh, this show is great. So my my question is, you know, we ha- we see all this political polarization in America where it's very tribal. And, you know, over the course of my lifetime, I've seen how things keep escalating where both sides – kind of become deeper and deeper entrenched and become more and more, you know, hyperbolic in their rhetoric. And they're just kind of othering people instead of like trying to understand. And I kind of feel like that should be a no brainer because if half the country voted for someone you don't like, you know, it's worth thinking about why so many people disagree with you instead of just acting like, oh, they're bad or they're crazy. But I also see this within the Libertarian Party. Uh, like you had that caller earlier that said the Mises Caucus people are fascists. Now, that's literally untrue because that's not what that word means. He's free to have his concerns, and even I have some. But this kind of over-the-top rhetoric, I've been seeing more and more. And I remember in 2020, some of the people that were more on the Mises side were calling Joe Jorgensen, you know, a far-left radical you know, CRT, woke, and communists, and that she was dangerous, and her people had to be removed from the party. And it was just obviously not true. If you listened to what she was actually saying, what policies she was talking about, it was clearly not that. Even if you have concerns about some of the things she said, it was clearly not that. And I'm wondering, what are some practical ways y'all think we could start getting people to talk to each other and listen better. Aaron, you want to take that? Yeah. I mean, I don't know that there's, there are no easy answers. 
to this question. This is this is the hard this is a hard question of the American political landscape right now. Uh, back in December, I published a, a long essay in at Reason that I think they titled "Mindfulness is What's Missing from American Politics," which is not you don't you don't get to pick your own headlines when you publish in Outlook. But um, yeah, a lot of people don't realize that, by the way. That we're not writing our own headlines when we write things, um, unfortunately. My, my argument in there, and this is like a, a kind of longer term perspective thing to get at your question, David, is I think a lot of this is a result of – so a lot of this increasingly seeing each other in in polarized terms, in extreme terms – seeing each other as as enemies as opposed to you know people we share this planet and this country with who we happen to disagree with on i mean on some salient issues but you know they're just they're other people like us is because politics has become so important in our lives not not just in the sense of i mean you know the people who watch cable news all day um but but how many of the choices that are available to us in our lives are either dictated by or constrained in some way by the political process or the outcomes of the political process. And one of the things that happens when you move a decision into the political sphere from the private sphere is that suddenly we can't kind of all just live the way we want to in peace with each other. Because if, say, I want to educate my children one way and you want to educate them another way, if if we each had choice about how to educate our kids, then I might look you know across the street at you and be like, that guy doesn't know what he's doing educating his kids, but it's fine. Like I can educate mine in the way that I think is right. But if we put it into the political process, then if you win, I lose. If I win, you lose. And now we are, in this instance, with something as as important to us as like how my children are going to be educated. Like that really matters to people, right? And now that becomes something where you are you are a threat to me. And and then that spins out in all these ways of if you're a threat to me, well we know that like that has a tendency to cause me to dehumanize you because it's easier to to think of you as even more of a threat or to not be so worried about punishing you back if I have dehumanized you and so on. Um, that the the larger this sphere of politics becomes and the more of our life decisions are live are like within it the more incentives we have to see each other in these really negative terms, to see each other as threats and enemies, to to sort ourselves into tribes and alliances against each other. And I don't I don't see a way to really bring down the temperature of of these debates, including the like epithet hurling and so on, so long as the sphere of politics keeps growing and keeps incentivizing this kind of behavior. Now, Aaron, do you think that a lot of this is due to social media that we, we hear each other's thoughts and we learn so much about what people are doing everywhere. And it creates sort of a rage machine where we just, someone did something we didn't like and it's halfway across the country, but because gets likes and retweets we're bound to say something um it's almost like a drug i think that social media probably plays some role but that it is it's an easy scapegoat 
you know, that we can just say like it's Twitter's fault and we've all seen how bad things get on Twitter. So it must be Twitter's fault. But we have, we have data on a lot of this, like the hyperpartisanship shows up among people who are not as very online as probably most of us on this call are. Um, that I think that the social media is much more likely a symptom of an underlying problem. It's a way, it's a way to see it more clearly than we might have in the past. But I am, I am skeptical of arguments that it is a primary or the chief driver of this change. I think that if we got rid of social media, we would still see a lot of this stuff. Are things more partisan today than say 70 years ago? And I ask this because it is often said that we live in the most tense times, but there were times just not that long ago when there was um, legalized segregation and discrimination in ways that um, don't exist to the same extent, obviously, today. It was some of the calm, if you will call it, back then because the rules and laws were so disproportionate that people were afraid to speak out, were afraid to say, I can't believe what you're doing, um, versus today when when maybe there is a little more equality and people are more likely now to say, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick it to this guy because I can? So I think a, th- a couple of things are different. First, it's you know, we like we talk now about there's it seems like there's this wave of political violence and we're worried about that. And is this going to you know that people are like, is this that our tipping point into civil war and so on? But in in many people's lives, days, lifetimes, they lived through much worse political violence. In this country. The 60s and 70s were just like constant political violence, whether that was riots or it was murders or kidnap it like it was political violence was just a constant and we have been living through an abnormally peaceful time politically. Um, I do think, though, that there is something to the like the democratization of political commentary that we are we are more aware, aware of each other. I so the part that I'm skeptical of is that that has made us more kind of more partisan as opposed to at a time before the internet you had more gatekeepers and by and large the like media gatekeepers are like calmer more measured people than like your average random person on social media and so they it the the kinds of messaging that they were engaged in looked different they could kind of control the environment more than when it's become more democratized but but even I if it was know. less even if it was less partisan in in some respects, was it necessarily better? Was it good for media in the old days to cover up the kind of abuses that were happening to people in the in the black community, for example? Like uh, when I see some of the stuff that goes on that is now on video because we have hmm. we have cameras with phones, and you see some of the horrors that go go on. And you think about a time in the past when this stuff might get swept under the rug. Not only did they not have cameras, you might have whole um, government departments or institutions that are like openly racist, not the kind of racism we might see today where maybe it's there's some subconscious racism and other things. You might have open racism 
or open prejudice against people, and it was considered okay, and then the media might cover a story um, and sweep it under the rug or not even cover it. A hundred percent. I mean, yes, and I think that's one of the – like one of, one of the most frustrating things I'll sometimes hear libertarians say is how much freer we used to be. Like the 19th century was a time <laughs> when we were – it was like, really? Like maybe maybe if you were a white property-owning dude, you know, but otherwise – you know, and even then, not really. Like, so yes, I think that when people look back at these these golden ages of when things seemed calmer and more civil, it is almost always because the really ugly stuff, the the oppression, the people who are being hurt, the people who are being marginalized, and so on, were being pushed to the side or were unable to express themselves, and that was being that was being hidden or. Or overlooked, you know, like, yeah, so what was being done to the black community? Well, that wasn't really something we should be worried about, right? Like, but now we kind of, we have to face it. Um, so, yes, I think I absolutely agree with you that there is, things were not, things were not better back then. It was just that marginalized voices were more marginalized than they are now. Right. But this doesn't change the problem of partisanship because partisanship can lead people to set aside rational thinking like this idea of my team versus your team does cause people to um discard their rational thinking and just go according to some you know some leader or some media personality who told them this is what they're supposed to think yeah um and i think yes that's absolutely true it is it is unseemly how much there's cult of personalities around presidents now i mean obviously with trump um but even that maudlin goodbye song to Obama on his last day in office with that Saturday night live did. That was just like the cringiest thing ever. Um, like, yeah, we kind of over invest in leaders. Part of that is that we have, we have over invested in the office of the president and just aggregated power into it. Um, but yes, I think, and, and I will tie this back to like, as the sphere of politics grows, which it has unquestionably just, grown over time in size and scope um <clears throat> we become more invested in it and then we become more invested in the people within it and and so then that turns into both partisanship because we become invested in the teams but also these these kind of personality cults and just worship of various people within it because that's you know the same way that we get excited about certain actors or athletes or whatever but where politics is just where our attention is now so the left often gets mocked or criticized for continuously dividing us into different smaller groups um uh, whether it's by race or gender or any number of categories do you think that this is a problem for liberalism this constant dividing us into various groups or is it a movement toward individualism because once you've divided enough times you just have to accept the idea that we are all just individuals with differences that don't fit neatly into all of these classes i think it can be both um you know, like it's never it's never a straight line. There's a there's a great line in Operation Ivy song where they say the course of human history stumbles like a drunk, and <clears throat> I think that's it's 
on the one hand, like recognizing traditionally marginalized groups or as a lot of the left, it is recognizing categories that were thrust upon people in the past and that they were judged within and now recognize now those people kind of claiming ownership of those categories for themselves as as now a point of pride as opposed to a point of, of oppression in the past can be empowering and real but at the same time there can be people who kind of take it too far get overexcited about these kinds of categorizations or or invest too much in thinking about people only in those terms and and my my suspicion is that this is one of these things like we don't tend to if if things are wrong, you know, things are, are not great in this direction. We don't tend to just adjust them back to the direction that they should be in, but rather we swing them like we overcorrect and then we overcorrect back and then we overcorrect. And, and eventually, like the direction seems to be like I think moral progress is real and society is, you know, society is better now than it was a thousand years ago or a thousand years before that. Um, but but it's this it's done through this series of over corrections. And so my general thought on on a lot of that stuff is we should point out the problems with it, but we should also <clears throat> we should also be somewhat like charitable towards some of it and recognize it as people like the some of the 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 motivations can be correct, but there can be an overcorrection. Um, and we shouldn't be too harsh on on the overcorrection unless it becomes you know genuinely dangerous. Let's go to Joshua. Hey guys, um, you know, one I want to thank you without doing any bootlicking. Uh, you guys do bring a very fair, reasonable, logic, rational, measured, like um, compassionate and empathic conversation to the discourse about these things. Thanks. Um, Thank you. Uh, I, I, I want to bring up a couple of things uh, from a, a libertarian's perspective, which I, I'm not going to claim a label for myself. Um, uh, distributed autonomous organizations um, and what you may or may not know about them, your perspective on them, worker cooperatives, um, modern monetary theory, um, and banning the Federal Reserve. I'm not saying that as a short-term strategy. Um uh, I guess we can go with those four, and I'm not going to chime in. I'm not going to talk over you guys. Thanks, Aaron. You want to take any of those? Sure. So I'll on the last two um, confess. Like when I first started at the Cato Institute, I was staff writer, which meant I had to read every paper that we published and every book and attend every single event and Hill briefing and so on. And I was into most of them except the monetary theory ones, where my kind of just eyes would glaze over somewhat um and so i don't i've never had strong opinions on the kind of intra libertarian disputes about monetary theory and related things the modern monetary theory stuff what i have seen of it sounds pretty fishy um <clears throat> banning the federal reserve is something where i just have to i have to defer to my friends like george selgin and others who know much more about it than i do on on the first two though um, so distributed autonomous organizations and worker collectives, I think these can be really interesting things. I think there's, you know, the, the DAOs, which is, you know, a way to distribute decision-making in 
um, this very decentralized way is super interesting. I don't know that it probably works very well for certain kinds of organizations or certain applications. It probably doesn't for others, but it's definitely something that is exciting. And the, the, the prospect of people from across the world being able to, on short notice, kind of come together and self-organize to accomplish things and share, say, the proceeds and the decision-making is is super cool. Uh, similarly, like the worker collectives, I mean, one of the, the great things about a genuinely free market is that people can organize their businesses in lots of different ways and see what works. And, and so I think there are some reasons, like there are people who think worker collectives should be everything. <clears throat> and, and I don't know that that's, I, I wouldn't go that far, but it seems like something that if, you know, if workers want to get together and experiment with, this is a way we're going to try to run an organization, like a hundred percent more power to them. And if it works awesome, and if it works well enough that other people are like, I want to try that too, then it'll spread. But if it doesn't work, you know, then we've learned something too. So I guess I don't, I don't come down on like, these are necessarily good or bad, but I think that one of the awesome things about a free society is people can experiment with this stuff and we should encourage it. Yeah, and I'll just briefly add on MMT, we could talk about this for a long time, so I'm not going to do a, a long talk here. But when you listen to any discussion of MMT, what you find is that the most important economic issues are the ones that are glossed over. So it all sounds reasonable to people, I think, who are not deeply versed in economics, actually. There's this idea that you can just um, keep spending money, and what matters is not how any of it's financed, but just how you spend it. So you can spend it on essentially poor people, or you can spend it on rich people is often the way it's presented. And that's what counts. The spending itself doesn't matter um, because the all of the um, the debt is just our own money is how they they frame it, and therefore none of it matters. And then they say, yeah, you could get inflation, but they kind of gloss over that part. And the glossing over the inflation part is, is quite strange um, to say, well, you can just keep um, creating new dollars forever. And the only risk is, yeah, there could be inflation. But that's not a small risk. That's not a small thing. That is the whole um, issue with monetary policy is whether you create inflation or not. If you have a society where there is a certain level of demand and you just pump a bunch of currency into it essentially, all you get is inflation. Inflation is basically a, a monetary um, creation. It's obvious that if you have uh, twice as many units of currency and you have the same economic activity otherwise, you just get an inflation in, in price. Um, they also think, for example, that the reason it's not a problem for the government to spend money is because the government will spend it on things that will help produce more more and better economic activity. But that falls right into the knowledge problem. Why would the government know how to spend the money better than the marketplace? Why is it better used by a bunch of bureaucrats in Washington or state capitals than by individuals making decisions? So the most important aspects of economics are glossed over in modern monetary theory. 
and and we could talk about this for quite a while, but I'll I'll leave it at that. As for um, ending the Fed, I'm a big believer in decentralizing currency. I think that there is a danger in the future of um, nationalized money where the government can come in and basically shut off your funds when they want to stop you from opposing whatever they're doing. And in Canada, we saw a glimpse of that. That's an example of what can be done. We've had votes like this in Congress um, while I was there, votes that were related to whether the government can basically compel banks to stop letting you do things based not on actual criminal convictions, but just because the bank is the government is suspicious and wants the bank to um, to stop you, or the government doesn't like what you're doing for for one of the reasons they claim is a compelling reason, right? You're involved in terrorism according to the government, or you're involved in some kind of illicit activity according to the government. Um, but without the um, evidence and proof necessary and the conviction necessary to call you a criminal. I think that stuff is very dangerous, and that's why I am a big believer in decentralizing money because I think if you get it out of the government's hands, you have taken away uh, perhaps its most significant power that can be used to coerce people um, in the future. And we've already seen what's going on in China, places like China where they use this um, social credit system. And I think it is not far-fetched that that type of thing could come to a place like the United States in the future. It may not be, it may not present itself in exactly the same way, but you may have some variation on that. And it may happen in ways that you don't necessarily notice at first. It'll be subtle. It will be small things, and then it will increase. It will go from small things to bigger things. And I am, I am very worried about that. Um, and and so. Yeah, I'd I'd like to uh, uh, be supportive of things like Bitcoin and uh, other uh, cryptocurrencies and crypto technology. Well, Aaron, tell them how they can hear more um, from you because I think a lot of people who are listening here, some of them are Obviously, your fans, some of them are people who are here because they listen to this podcast and, and they want to know more about you in the future. So tell them how they can hear from you. And Sure. Uh, so I think the main place is <clears throat> I'm pretty active on Twitter uh, at A Ross P. Um, but otherwise, I host now two podcasts. One is called Reimagining Liberty, and you can just punch that into your favorite podcasting app and find it, which is me setting out and defending my case for, for liberty as I understand it. And then the other one, which I just launched, is called Reactionary Minds, and that's part of Shikadalmi is the Unpopulist Project, which is a very good newsletter. Uh, and And that one is talking with people about trying to understand the the people and ideas and psychology driving um, driving a liberalism, driving the rise of a liberalism and and the desire to to turn away from a liberal society. So yeah, my the two podcasts, Reimagining Liberty and Reactionary Minds. Well, I'm looking forward to working with you to revive liberalism as an idea, as an 
as a philosophy, as something that people in this country care about. And um, I'll certainly be following you on Twitter, and I'll be listening to your Thank podcast. So thanks Thank so you. much, Aaron. Thank All right, you, take Jessica. care. This was fun. Okay. Yeah, bye.